It takes a village to build a season, and we are grateful that In Life Shiro's has chosen to become a part of ours. Thank you for supporting our show and helping us to continue sharing stories. Now, on to the episode. At age 26, most young women are gearing up for a life of possibilities, ready to carry out an endless stream of dreams and ambitions. But not Crisan Seldran. At age 26, newly married, she was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer. Instead of experiencing the first throes of adulthood like her peers and planting the seeds of the rest of her life, she was suddenly fighting for it. She tells us about her cancer journey, the years of treatment and isolating feelings, coming to terms with shattered dreams, experiencing miracles, and channeling her own struggles into helping others. My name is Leah Cruz. On this episode of What Glass Ceiling, we talk to Crisan Seldran. Thank you so much for joining us, Crisan. Welcome to What Glass Ceiling. Thank you. Good afternoon. Now, you're a breast cancer survivor and you're also the co-founder of the I Can Serve Foundation. Can you tell us your story? Okay, my story started 23 years ago. So I was 26 years old. I was a newlywed. So prior to that, I wasn't sickly. I wasn't feeling anything. I wasn't, there wasn't anything to be alarmed about, except that I married um, my son, my pediatrician's son. So when I was telling everyone how embarrassing if I have a stomachache or, or whatever, I have to go to him, but he's now dad. So everyone said, you know, you're 26. It's high time you see a gynecologist, right? No more pediatrician anymore. So I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I really just went to Makati Med. I looked up a list. I looked at who was available at that time. And a lady called Dr. Limson was available. So I scheduled um, standard gynecologic test. And within seconds, she felt a lump um, in my breast, very, very palpable lamp, uh, lump. So um, she didn't seem very alarmed because of my age. But she wanted to have it biopsy just to make sure. What was it like at that point? I mean, you didn't exactly go in there, you know, expecting to be diagnosed or even to hear the words biopsy, I'm sure. I mean, yeah, at age 26. I knew so little. So I really thought it was nothing. So I proceeded to get um, an excision biopsy. The excision biopsy, you're awake. I'm even looking at the doctor's face. I'm chatting with him. I really think I'm going to go back to work the next day and my life's going to go back to normal. And um, the story is that he eyeballs it. He sees it. And he knows for sure because of the number of tumors he's seen up close. But he, of course, wants to make sure. So he is completely poker-faced. I have no idea. So I go back home, nothing, go about my day. And I assume they're going to tell me that it's completely benign because a lot of people my age have lumps and they're always usually benign. So a few days later, um, my husband gets a call and says they want you to go back to the hospital. And my father-in-law's there waiting as well. And you'd think at that point, the red flags would come up, but still no. I still think they just want to change my bandage because that's the story they tell me they, why I'm going back to the hospital. And then they break it to me. And then they tell me that it's cancerous. At this point, they still don't know the stage, but that I would have to have my breast removed completely. So this was 
that was well, that was one of the first things that that they told you that you'd have to have your yeah, breast and I was completely. five months married only at that point, completely newlywed. Yeah, is twenty six years old an unusual age to be diagnosed with cancer? It is. It is. We're. I mean, you're seeing younger and younger patients, but generally they're forty, forty five years old and up. Okay, so what what did you do from there? What was the next step? So the next did? step was to schedule the mastectomy. So that's removing your breast completely. So they remove that. And then a few days later, what they do is they remove the lump. They also remove, so they remove the lump, they remove the breast. They also remove your lymph nodes to sort of get an indication of how serious it is. That's what stage is it. So they removed 12 lymph nodes and four lymph nodes were positive. So it was a very big lump. And then there were positive lymph nodes. So that stage needed three. Three, stage three with four being the most um, terminal and advanced. So rather advanced for my age, yes. Um, what else? What, did you go through any other treatments? Yes. So since it's stage three and what they say is when you're young, it's also very fast growing. And the doctors also believe that when you're younger, you can handle more harsher treatment. So I did the works. I did... Um, six months of chemotherapy. I did 33 sessions of radiation. That's every day. And then five years of a hormonal therapy. Yeah. Five years. Five years is long. It is. It's a daily pill. It's not as... Once you get through chemo, things get easier. But still, it's like a daily reminder also. Yeah. Yeah. So all in all, how long were you treated for it? Five and a half years. Five and a half years. Yeah, till I was 31. Wow. Yeah. What was your life like for those five and a half years? I mean, I can't imagine because you're 26, you've just gotten married, you're supposed to be full of zest for life, full of hopes and dreams. And what was your life like? Exactly. And it's also the same age, like your friends are all getting married and you're going to, I remember having to attend a wedding. I think I was a bridesmaid or a sponsor burning with fever because of my chemotherapy. I promised to go. I show up, stay a little for the reception and come home. And then you're like, this is not really what, what life is like, right? And then sometimes you tell yourself, I should be buying beanies for a little baby. But you're buying a beanie for your own head because you're completely bald at that time. You're buying wigs. So it's, and it's a hell of a way to start a marriage also. Imagine, they say you have like a million and one things to adjust to and then you have this. Right. I was just going to ask because people usually say that the first year of marriage is the hardest because of all those adjustments. So yes. what was it what was it like to have to go through that and you're adjusting to being married? How did how did that affect your marriage? It's really hard. But in hindsight, it's yeah, it's really tough way to start, but it makes you strong. It makes you strong together. It really sees, I mean, imagine he made a vow five months before that to say in sickness and in health. I mean, <laughs> right? But he stood by me. He even um, shaved his head at the same time that I had to shave mine. So it will. It really built a solid foundation. I don't recommend it for other <laughs> newlyweds, but it's there. It was the life we were dealt. And I think we did a good job with it. What were the changes in your lifestyles that you had to make, not just as a, as a, as you yourself, but as a married couple, because, you know, that's a lot of adjustment also for, for say like 
a new husband as well. So what were these lifestyle changes that you had to make? I, me more than, I've always been balanced. I, I don't really eat. I mean, I eat anything. I started to, I wasn't getting picky about eating either. But me, it was more of, I know I get stressed easily. That's really me. I'm type A, I'm high strong. So I had to make a conscious effort to just learn to let things pass, to chill a little bit. And I think my husband might have even been a bit thankful about that also because it really taught me how to just, you know, let things be. That I can't control everything. It's a major lesson, no, when you're young. (laughs) Did it change you? I mean, you did mention that that you had to make changes in your personality. You had to adopt a certain mindset. Of course, my kids will tell you now I'm still quite... (laughs) I'm hyper, but... I'd like to think, yeah, it changed me. You really, I mean, I know it sounds like such a cliche, but you really see what matters. These things appear so trivial after you're faced with death, right? You let things slide. How did it affect your general outlook on life? Like how you saw life or, or your mindset, your approach? Well, two things. The The one side was I was super thankful I was alive. I mean, at that point, I really thought, uh, melodramatic, like literally my Christmas gifts were still boxed. You know what I mean? That's that's how new it was. So I kept, you know, in my melodramatic mood, I was like, I'm never even going to get to open my wedding gifts. I'll never even see it. They'll never even see the time of day. They'll never even see me, right? And so that part. But um, the other side also was um, understanding that there's also a bit, there's also bitterness. You can't help it, right? Like you, I didn't want to go to my friend's baptisms, the kids' baptisms. Because at that point, you really tell yourself, I don't think I'm going to have a child anymore. What I forgot to tell you was three years, so I have a five-year hormonal treatment, right? So what happens is the hormone sometimes makes um, lumps form in your uterus So by your ovary. So what happened was on the third year, I woke up, almost like an appendicitis, like I was screaming in pain. And so we had to be rushed to the hospital. And what happened was my hormonal treatment was causing um, tumors or lumps to form and one wrapped around the ovary. So before they were going to knock me out, I just said, can you just save my ovary? Because I still want to have a kid. I mean, I told myself I was going to try after five years. And of course, they put me to sleep. And of course, when I woke up and I saw everyone's faces, I knew I lost my ovary. So I ended up with one over. So I'm already thinking there are so little chances for me to have a child given all the toxic medicine I've already had. And then I only have one ovary. Good luck to me, right? So, well, fast forward, five years after treatment, I finally tell the doctor, I really want to have a child. And my doctor is like, you can try. I mean, even they're not being very hopeful. They don't want to raise my hopes. And three weeks later, I tell her, I think I'm pregnant. Oh my so we gosh, go to the three hospital. weeks only? Wow. After the six, <laughs> six months, after the six months, yeah. they told me to. Yeah, yeah I wasn't not, not ganado at all, diba? So, so, so they tell me, okay, so I am, I am pregnant. And then after, they made me wait for another six weeks to go to the ultrasound. And... She doesn't realize I have no idea. And she goes, um, malaki na rin si Twin B. And I'm like, Twin B? 
and there are two babies in there. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yes. Oh my goodness, what a story. Yeah. What, what, what did you what did you say? How did how did you feel? What went through your mind at that moment? I went from completely shocked. Completely shocked. Yeah. Imagine. Even the doctors are like in shock. I still look at them and I still can't believe, given the history, given everything that happened. Right? So what happens though is that, of course, everybody was being cautious because um, my kind of cancer feeds on estrogen. And when you're pregnant, there's a surge of estrogen in your body. So I'm enjoying the kids, but in the back of my mind, when they're six months old, I need to go back and I need to get tested because that's usually when the cancer comes back. And I had promised the doctor one pregnancy, but I didn't plan for the two, right? This is just a miracle given to me. So sorry, the lad, right? So after six months, we got I got checked and there was no evidence of this. So, yeah. so you were cleared after those five and a half years of treatment. I was yes. And then and then you when you had it checked again at the six month mark after this when is the after boys the are birth? yeah after a pregnancy yeah. yes yeah okay yeah the, the I have to ask I mean it, it's an amazing yeah. story and do you did you somehow. You know, sometimes when you're going through something, you're like, I can't see the point to all of this. But a mindset that a lot of us adopt is there's a there's a there's a lesson here somewhere, there's a silver lining here somewhere. I just don't know what it is just yet. But did you feel like I I, I don't want to use the term vindicated, but somehow the the journey, this the the difficulty of your journey was made a little bit more worthwhile at the end. Yeah, it certainly gives you purpose. Yeah. I mean, I like I told you, I, I'm so camera shy. I'm so private. I really don't like talking. I'm really, really shy. But when you have a story like that, and you know that the story can help somebody else or inspire somebody else, that's my purpose, right? So I, I stopped questioning or thinking, what did I do wrong? Why did I have to, that extra drink in high school? Or you know what I mean? Did I eat too much fat? or when I stress too much, you learn how to stop feeling guilty about it and then just find the purpose. And I guess my purpose is this. This is why I'm here. I also forgot to tell you, um, six years ago, I had another baby. I was 43. <gasps> another oh surprise. My, my doctors don't know what to do with me. <laughs> another boy. <laughs> another shock. Oh, Wow. Did you expect that? I mean, no, not at all. Not at, not all. at all. I mean, were, were, did you think not you? I mean, did you think you stopped the, the, the twins already? Given the yeah, like, I told my doctors one pregnancy, right? I wasn't thinking of two. In fact, um, I was thinking of having my other ovary removed already. I did. I wanted to have it removed before, but all the doctors were saying, you know, you're still young. You don't want to make, you know, such commitments to these things. So I was finally ready. I'm like, I'm really ready. This is time. I need my body to rest. So my body won't be exposed to any more estrogen. So I even said, um, maybe not in October. Well, let's not schedule for October. I'm busy. It's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It's all our activities. So let's just do it after Christmas. And somewhere in the middle of delaying that, I found that I was pregnant. So another miracle came. <laughs> you know, it's... 
I, there's so many questions already, given that you're a cancer survivor. I mean, I can ask you, do you live with fear that it will come back? Because it's very possible. And, you know, I can ask you that. But I can also mm-hmm. ask you, after that entire experience, does becoming a mother that way, the way you did, does it make you braver about life? Or does it actually compound your fear and your worries? Because be- becoming a mother comes with a lot of comes right? with a lot of worries and and you know given your background i mean does it make you braver about things or does it sort of in a way make it worse i'll be honest i go back and forth with it okay. when it's time to be tested once a year scanxiety is real i mean i sit there waiting for my mammogram and all of a sudden i feel like my chest is heavy and i have all these aches and pains that are phantom all because you know it's the time of year again and then you're cleared and then all of a sudden Yes, you're braver. I mean, you're you're blessed with a whole new life, right? So you're really in advantage of that. How does that feed into your parenting or or the way that you that you that you handle your kids? How strict you are with them? What you allow them to do? We should guess them at the interview. I'm sure the answers <laughs> will be different. <laughs> but yeah, I'd like to think um, I show them that you can make something out of something that's quite tragic, right? My kids, since they weren't um, around to see me going through cancer, I really thought it was a non-issue. In fact, I attended a breast cancer conference. My boys were six. And I raised my hand and I said, do you think I should tell my boys that I once had breast cancer? And um, the speaker said, and your boys are how old? And I said, they're six. So I said, when should I do it? I was stalling. And she was like, now, today. Yeah, six years old, today. She goes, you teach them how you make something. And so I came home and then I told them the story and then they started to understand, right? And um, you really think it has no effect on your kids, right? Because like that, they didn't see me get bald. They just hear it. They forever seeing our activities. They see me with other survivors. But you also don't think it has any impact. And um, my 16-year-old boy recently set up an, an app, a mobile app, and um, a website with support groups and um, hospital listings, all for breast cancer survivors to help the breast cancer community. So you realize that it does. You know what I mean? You don't shove it down their throats, but maybe they're watching from the sides, they're seeing, and hopefully that helps inspire them to help others also. So. How do you also come to terms with the idea of mortality? Because I can imagine you've come face to face with, you've come to terms with your own. But then you also realize that we're all going to die. And the people around me, the ones I love, are also subject to this. So how do you, how do you deal with that also? Like it's, it's constantly in your face, at the back of your head that, you know, everything is fleeting. It is. And it doesn't even have to be from cancer. It can be from an accident tomorrow or peacefully in your sleep. Um, I just tell myself to just do the best I can every single day. And if it's time to go, then hopefully I did everything I could. So I'm braver. I know it's, it's around the corner for everybody. I'd like to stay longer. I remember when in the beginning, when the boys were small, I would make deals when I'd pray. I'd be like, oh, can I just hang around until they say their first words? 
And then you get greedier. Wait, wait. Um, when they start to walk, and then oh, second birthday, and then fourth birthday, and then you start to see it, and then so you just learn to take advantage of everything you can. When your kids are small, how do you explain that to them? Like the danger of of possibly losing a parent, or I mean, how do you prepare them for that? Especially probably for mothers who have young children now who are sick or who have a terminal illness and, and they don't even know where to begin. I think the most important is if they're a certain age, you just have to be completely honest. That's what we always tell all our survivor friends. I didn't have that um, issue because they weren't, um, they weren't born yet. But I would imagine just complete honesty. I mean, even when you're not feeling well, to just tell them and to just be on the journey together. Because you can't hide it from them. No matter what, you're, you're in it together. And sometimes you'll realize children will step up. Children will help you. And they also know what it's like to be around somebody who's strong and inspiring. And in the long run, that will also impact in their life. How do you prepare your loved ones, like say your husband, the older ones, the adults in your life, your husband, your your other family members, your in-laws, how do you prepare them to have to go through the experience with you? Because I can imagine that you'll need support and you'll need to lean on the ones closest to you. So how do you go about that? If, I'm, if I get sick again? No, I mean, even when you got oh, sick at that before. time? Yeah, or, you know, or even time, now. I was, I was, at that time, I was so lost. I was so young. I mean, I would do things a lot different then and now. At the time, I just whatever support they could give me. I never even asked. They were just there for me. My father-in-law would take me to radiation. I'd hitch with him to the office because he had his clinic. And so he'd be there. Some are in your face helpful. Some are the quiet ones in the back. People really help in different ways. So you just take any help and support you can get because you really need it all. And what would you do differently now, now that you're older? I would be a little bit more assertive. And that's what I kind of advocate these days. We, we, we want you to remember how before it was like your doctor told you something and you'd be like, yes, sir. Right. He was boss and you'd say yes. And now what we're trying to say is you're in this together. You're actually partners and you know your body better than anybody else, even if he knows better. So I would um, be a more um, partnership where the doctor and I, and then another thing I would do is I would ask the doctors to incorporate mental health. It's something that, I mean, I didn't have an issue with it, luckily then, but I would imagine how it comes into play, but it's never talked about or it's never even addressed. So you meet your team, you have your oncologist who takes care of the chemotherapy, your surgeon, and then the doctor that will you'll follow up from, but nobody ever discusses like somebody that can help a patient with mental health. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not automatic. I mean, even it's nowadays, not it's not, not even here. Not at all. Oh. In fact, yeah, what we're trying to do is on our own. We're trying to do um, webinars where we tell them, don't just survive. You need to thrive. Right. Especially with the pandemic and all of that. So many things have come into play already. Yeah. So that's what I hope will be different in the next couple of years for patients. Okay. So I, we're kind of getting into your work with the I Can Serve Foundation. So 
Can you give us a brief overview of the foundation before I ask anything else? Okay, so um, before that, I knew nobody who had breast cancer. I just knew that I had to go into the hospital and get my mastectomy. But there was a common friend um, who knew a girl called Kara Magsanok Alikpal, and I had, read, I had read about her before that. So she was diagnosed a year before me. So I told my friend, as soon as I come out of the hospital, I want to speak to someone. You know, some people like to um, talk to people and some people don't, right? I miss, yeah. I want to know everything. So when I get home, I want to talk to her and I want to meet her. And so I did. And together with two friends, we were four, small little round table in the cafe. We started to talk and it really helped me. And we told ourselves when somewhere down the line, we want to do this for other people. And we didn't wait because she had, she had already had um, cancer for about a year. That was, I was diagnosed in August. We set up the foundation in December. So we hit the ground running with this. Yeah. And it started very small. It was like meetups, little yoga. But it started to grow organically. And at least what was really important with me is like that. Imagine I knew one person who had cancer. And I told myself, I don't want that to be the next person. You're scrambling, looking for somebody to speak with, right? And you think there's only one person in the world that's, you know, almost your age. So that, that was really my thing. I didn't want anybody to feel alone or ashamed about it. How have you grown since then as a foundation? Well, we certainly don't fit in a cafe table for four anymore. <laughs> we're, I think we're 400 strong or oh, a little wow. bit more than that. Yeah. And it just includes Luzon, Visayas, and Mindanao. We are the support group. So we don't yeah. like meet weekly to discuss. I mean, there's definitely support there in other ways. But um, yeah, so we do things differently. But yeah, we're a lot now. These are all I mean, it's women. Just, it's a sad thing because it yeah. you realize also how many people are, you know, suffering from breast cancer, but um, we all have each other, so that should help. So these are all women who have had the disease or are going yes. through it at the are moment. all survivors, yes. Have you ever lost someone in the support group, in the community? A lot, a lot. What, yeah. what, can I, do I dare ask what that is like? Because, you know, you, you grow your community and you develop these relationships. And I mean, many of you are lucky to be to survive it, but then once in a while, I... Yeah, imagine. it's really hard. I mean, you think you get harder and stronger, but you don't. You don't. And I'm like me, I was always like when cancer came to me, I realized later that I considered it actually a gift because I learned so much from it. But when my friends pass on, forget it. You're not nice to cancer. No, no, no. You're not my gift anymore. You're not even my friend in me, right? So yeah, it's, it's really hard. And we all have to like take a break. We all have to grieve. Honor them. So you just work harder. Sometimes we joke, they're stronger up there than us. They're more like in the board of directors and then they go. So we just work harder in memory of them, I guess. So what, yeah. what are the steps that women can do for early detection? I mean, like, like if you had to give me like a basic primer or like breast cancer detection for dummies, what would you tell me? Okay, so what, you, what we do is we keep it really, really simple. It's the 20-30-40 rule. So at 20 years old, you learn about your body and you do a um, breast self-exam. And that's monthly. Usually you do it at the exact same time every month. So you do a breast self-exam. 
when you turn 30, you do a breast self-exam, but you also have a once a year, a clinical exam. So you see a doctor and the doctor palpates and checks for you. So you do all of that until you're 40, include all of that, but you add a mammogram. At 40? At 40. So at, at 40, you do a mammogram, you do the clinical breast exam, but you also try to make the commitment to check yourself every month. Because it's really only you that knows the difference. You'll know if it looks different, it feels different, or something's wrong. There's more awareness around the disease now, I imagine, than there was before. But I, I, I know women who've used the excuse, but, but I'm healthy and, and I, I'm, I have kids. You know, there, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with me. Everything seems, to be, everything seems to be working the way it is. I mean, I didn't have any trouble getting pregnant. I breastfed. My kids are healthy. What would you say to that? What would you tell them? I think breast cancer doesn't choose. You can be completely healthy. I've met complete vegetarians. I've met people that smoke. I've met all those that get stressed. And I've met completely zen ones. And all have survived or um, been diagnosed with breast cancer. So it doesn't choose. I mean, there are certainly um, factors that contribute to it, right? So what would I say is, it's a really simple um, five-minute commitment to your own body once a month. It costs you nothing, right? I mean, apart from the mammogram that you'd have to do yearly, but at least for the breast self-exam. Because what happens is people are scared because they don't want to find out, right? But if you find out very early on, it's a completely different beast you need to deal with rather than if you get it up when it's already been spread. Now, if you're diagnosed, what can you do? I would, medically, I would find the doctor that really, um, that you really believe in. That's super important. You really, really have to trust your doctor. You can't keep second guessing. You need to trust him. So that's on the medical side. And when you trust him, you trust him fully. But remembering you're right that your partner's in this. And then for yourself, you just have to trust that you really have that strength in you. You know that you know what they say, like if your house is on fire and given the the time, the things people can carry out in such a short time, they get shocked. So you have to speak trust that you have that in you. You have that strength in you that you have never tested, but it's there. So that strength is in you, and then also find support outside because they're there. I mean, friends, even strangers. The best is really others who've gone through the journey. It's nothing like talking to someone who has been through it. I complained my whole life. I'm the only daughter. It's like, mom, I have no sisters. It's so sad. Well, be careful what you wish for, right? I have like <laughs> 500 sisters now, but they really, really help. I, it, it only underscores the need for, for a community and support, especially now. With the pandemic and all the isolation and especially when you're going through something difficult and, and the need to prioritize mental health as well. Correct. Yes. What's your life like now? Like with, with your with your family and your three unexpected children? I know. What's um, it like? It's busy. It's very busy. <laughs> I have I have sixteen year olds boys and a six year old boy. So I'm dealing with a teenager. We're looking at colleges. I'm being well, looking for at grade one. <laughs> so we have that. But um, it's been fun. It's really been fun because I remember when I 
told myself I might not have had this life, right? So every single day, I know they're there. They're just completely gifts. So I try to enjoy as much as I can. What are the biggest lessons that you've learned from having to go through basically a lifetime suffering from a serious illness? And because and, 26 is so young. And I mean, since, you know, since then, you've had, you've had it at the back of your head because you have to get tested regularly. So what are the biggest yeah. lessons about life? Well, they say you always wait for the other shoe to drop. But at 23 years, maybe you wait for the five-year mark. Then you wait for the 10-year mark. And then 15. So it's, it's there, but you know you've gone past it. What have I really learned? I would say that you can't control everything. It's the biggest wake-up call. And if there's something that it, this came to me because of that, that was my reason. I was a control freak. So you really learn that you cannot. You, there are curveballs that are going to come into your life. There are surprises. You really just have to work with it and make the most of it. What are the lessons that you've learned about marriage given your journey so far? That you really just have to accept, accept each other, and go through it together. I mean, it isn't easy for... You know, there are no breast cancer support groups for the husbands, right? There was a there was a, a group that tried to start it. And every day they'd say, oh, guys, Friday, husbands, a husband's beat. And the stories that no one would show up because all the guys were so embarrassed. And finally, one guy said, guys, beer night on Friday. Nobody used the word support. Nobody used whatever. And all the husbands did show up that afternoon. And they all sat around and then they did talk about their their wives, you know, indirectly. So it's really hard for the men. And it's also hard for a caregiver. I would imagine it's hard for somebody watching this because you have to be strong for two, right? So hats off. I mean, he was really supportive. And it's, I mean, we were so young to go through that. And he never once, you know, I when I was battling about, I'm never going to have kids. It's going to be so hard and all these things. He just nodded. He just let me be. You know, he never ever like putting his own, but we should have kids or we should, you know, other options. And he, he never even discussed that with me. He knew it was something that we deal with eventually, but he just let me heal, which is really the most important. What would you tell those who have to be the caregivers? To listen, to support. Um, only give advice if they ask. Sometimes they don't even want, they just want you to know you're listening and to acknowledge that. And most importantly, to just validate their feelings, even if sometimes it feels um, small to you. Or, I mean, after everything I've been through, you laugh, my worst problem was my hair falling. And everyone would have been like, seriously, you could die, but you're worried that your hair fell. That's the saddest day of your life, but it was, right? So imagine if somebody belittled me for thinking that I'm baba mo naman, ang vain, right? I am. What can you do, right? So I think it's really just listening and supporting. People deal with things in different ways and you respect that. What would you tell someone who's been diagnosed with breast cancer? Like what practical advice would you give or emotional advice would you give them? Um, I would 
tell them to find their own way to grieve. And to just, uh, they can't keep looking, you know, especially now with social media, you're always looking at, oh, she's a breast cancer survivor. She's, she's handling it so well. You know what I mean? You just have to realize that everyone handles it different. You just be respectful and you find your own way to heal. That was my biggest problem. And my problem was the whole, um, how do you say, the whole message of breast cancer is always fight it, battle it. You know, it's always that. That's not my personality. It wasn't. So I couldn't deal. I couldn't understand. Everyone's like, um, F cancer and all of this. It really wasn't me. So finally, um, somebody sent me a book. They, they sent you a million books. Unbelievable, the things that will arrive in your house when you find out you have breast cancer. But anyway, amidst this pile of things people send you was a book called How to Have Cancer Without Going to War. And it was embracing it, accepting it. You don't use battle. You don't use fight. You don't use beat. And I completely understand how other people might use it and it works for them, you know, the, the warriors. But it wasn't for me. And this book just changed the way I thought of it. I mean, for me, that's my life. That was one of my lifesavers. Yeah. So it's that. It's just respecting that people deal differently and allow yourself to deal with cancer in the way you know how. I've, I've, well, I've, I've, I've never had cancer, but I've never heard that approached before. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's, 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 you don't hear it because in the, the mainstream, the message is always to fight it, to beat it. Right. To take and on I that warrior relate. persona. I really couldn't. I tried. I tried my best, but I couldn't. <laughs> it wasn't me. Okay. That, that's, that's I very interesting. Out. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> did that seep into other areas of your life as well? Like that, that kind of mindset? Um, it's it's not like you if you have an enemy, still an enemy, but embrace it. So I made cancer for enemy, <laughs> right? But I found a medium. Okay. So so instead of just being so opposed to it, why don't I get to know about it more? Educate myself, educate other people. You know, kind of know how to deal with it. Not necessarily fight it, because if it comes, it comes, right? But at least I'm armed with information. What are the lessons that you've learned about parenting and motherhood? Um, patience, acceptance, and just to continue to lead by example. They'll follow you. I mean, I'm right. I have teenagers. I'm sure they're so sick and tired of me trying to make sermon and try to teach them that. And you learn that what if I just quietly to go about my business and maybe they'll learn, right? They'll maybe just lead by example. Not so noisy now. <laughs> and nowadays, before we end, before we wrap things up, nowadays, what are the words that you live by? The words that sort of get you through your day? I always, and it wasn't even today. It was even like, I never forget in my MRI that's 23 years ago. I kept telling myself, this too shall pass. And I say it, it was like a mantra. And I say it over and over again. I said it during the pandemic. I said it during, you know, when you're dealing with hardship, that things come, but they go. And they come for a reason. So we have to find that purpose and make that purpose work for us and for others. Chrisanne, thank you so much for coming on What Glass Ceiling and sharing your story with us. We're very honored. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 
feel like you need a little more female support? Visit www.inlifesheroes.com for more information or to connect with a financial advisor.